My name is Matthew Aiello Lamons, and I am a assistant professor in environmental studies and science. How did you get interested in environmental studies? So I've always spent a lot of time hiking and camping outside with my family. I kind of developed a real love for being outside. That said, I was always more inclined to study science, and that's what I did. As a high school student, I focused on the sciences and the maths. And when I went to school, I was actually a physics major when I went to college. But I quickly started realizing that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I went and took a job working as a backcountry caretaker in the Appalachian Mountains, specifically the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And there, I started getting introduced to people who were doing research on various aspects of environmental science. So can you explain what is involved with being a backcountry caretaker? There are a number of campsites that are accessible only by uh, hiking or backpacking into those sites in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And at each of these sites during the summer months, so from Memorial Day to Labor Day approximately, there is a caretaker who lives at the site in a four-walled canvas tent. During the evenings, the caretaker you know, makes the rounds, talks to people about low-impact camping. And during the day, we would spend our time doing trail work, doing outreach, and also uh, taking care of the human waste collector. It was a batch bin composting system for human waste. Wow. Okay, so this was after you finished college, after you finished your undergrad, right? That's right. It's a seasonal position, but I was able to link up different seasons to work for almost two years continuously. Was this a position that you took thinking, maybe this is just what I'm going to do forever? Or was this kind of a, like, I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing next kind of thing? Yeah, that's a good question. The first summer I did it as just a summer position was between junior and senior year of college. And then when I graduated, I knew I didn't want to go on in physics, even though I had taken the GREs to go to grad school. I had looked at a bunch of grad schools. But I had decided it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I continued with the caretaker position thinking, well, this is something I could do for now. And maybe this is a path to something else in natural resource management. Okay. And so let's get back to the human waste collection. Oh, sure. <laughs> because, I mean, I feel like we have to. Um, what's involved with that? If you've ever been hiking and you see like these outhouses, Usually, an outhouse in the backcountry is just a big pit you dig, and then you build a wood shelter over it, and you put a toilet seat in there of some sort, and you call that that. The problem with those, once the outhouse is full, there's really nothing you can do other than cover it up with dirt and move the facility over a couple of feet. The decomposition of the waste in a pit latrine like that is very, very slow. So... In locations that have a lot of use, like these campsites do in, in the White Mountains, you need to turn over that waste quicker. So the process is you put a collector, a 55-gallon Rubbermaid container, underneath the toilet in the outhouse. Periodically through the summer, depending on the site use, you pull out that collector and you uh, have all the, you know, the material as we, we like to call it. We have a lot of euphemisms for everything that happens here. You would um, homogenize the mixture by mixing it up with a pitchfork. Then you would mix it with uh, hardwood bark chips. And 
usually for, you know, 55 gallons of human waste, you would mix that with somewhere around 20, 50-pound bags of bark chip. So you're talking a lot of bark chip to, to waste. And then you allow that to compost for upwards of a month, if not longer. And during that process, the, the pile gets to about 160 degrees internally, which leads to killing most of the harmful bacteria that is in human waste. And then we would take that material, we would spread it out on these drying racks, uh, allow it to dry for you know, two or three weeks, and then you'd sift it through the drying racks, and you would save the pieces of bark chip that were left, and then you would spread the now completely composted human waste, which is called humus, out in the woods. How often would you have to remove the container? Over the course of a summer, our busier sites, probably you'd have to empty the collector four, five, maybe six times over the course of summer. So you're talking twice a month. It wasn't that onerous, I would say. And, but the process is about a full day of emptying the collector. It's about eight to ten hours of work. So you'd have poop days. That, that is exactly what we would call them, too. Okay, on to non-poop-related things. Right now you're doing research, and I'm guessing it's not poop-related, right? Yeah, that's right. My PhD research was all on understanding how certain plants become invasive plants and how they spread throughout new areas that they invade. So I was working with a plant called glossy buckthorn, which is a shrub, and it is originally from uh, Europe and Asia, and it came to the United States, oh, probably around 1850. And it spread pretty rapidly throughout Northeast North America. What I asked in my PhD research was, what are the processes that allowed this species, glossy buckthorn, to invade so rapidly and become so prevalent? And then another branch of my research is on why certain species of plants co-occur. So why are you know, these plants living alongside these other plants? And why do some compete and prevent each other from being able to survive in the same location and some don't compete in the same way and they allow for each other to live in the same location. What's the bigger picture? What's the larger significance to why some plants coexist with each other versus compete with each other? You can look at biodiversity in a couple of different ways. Why do some systems support higher levels of biodiversity than others? What are the effects of some plants on biodiversity? So then you have to ask, okay, why do we care about biodiversity? And there are a couple of different ways to answer that. One is just from a philosophical perspective of valuing biodiversity for the sake of biodiversity. This idea that all organisms have a right to exist and we should do what we can to um, make sure that, that, that their existence is maintained. Another aspect that you have to think about in biodiversity is that ecosystems are very complex and we rely on ecosystems that we interact with for all sorts of types of services, whether it be uh, wetlands that clean our water or coastal wetlands that protect us from floods. And because of those complexities, we really don't know well what happens when you start decreasing the biodiversity of those systems. Most evidence suggests that they become less stable, more likely to collapse. And if they collapse, they no longer provide the services that we need. Additionally, the age that we're living in now, this, you know, this age in which our climate is changing 
and we are having a greater and greater influence on our ecosystems. It's very important that we understand what biodiversity provides for us and what effects certain perturbations have or certain you know, impacts have on that biodiversity. And that's the way I feel about it. And I think most uh, ecologists and even evolutionary biologists feel similarly. Matthew, thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to interview me.